I've been here for five years. I've been in this room hearing Thursday morning seminars for five years. And to be up here, it's truly an honor. Um, I have about an hour and a half worth of slides and about 45 minutes to get the room, so I may as well start. So some of you have heard my research before in various iterations. I wanted to give a more global overview of what I've been doing with MIMO in the past five years and what I hope to be doing in the coming five to ten years. Um, generally, the um, <laughs> I've seen lighting issues for five years, too. <laughs> Inhibition of notch signaling, and I'll get into a little bit about why we're studying this, but the concept is that inhibition of notch signaling is good. Um, if you'll forgive um, but, um, this gratuitous CDC, obesity, diabetes, uh, maths, I think it's clear to say that obesity has gone rampant, right? It's an epidemic. It's not a surprise to anyone ever seen these maps in various iterations. And I think what's also pretty well appreciated is that the rise of obesity from 94 to 2010 is pretty much mirrored by the uh, rise in type 2 diabetes over that same time. Um, I don't even want to talk about what happened in Colorado yesterday. But um, <laughs> the, um, the, the thought is obesity predisposes to type 2 diabetes, right? This is almost a given. Can we intervene upon obesity? Yes, of course we can. We can do behavioral, we can do lifestyle modifications. Those don't work so well, I think many of our clinician colleagues know. Can we intervene upon obesity with pharmacologic agents? Yes, of course we can. There are even a few approved. But they're only approved, generally speaking, for a short amount of time. Um, these are just uh, some of the medications that have been approved, but then withdrawn from the market, mostly withdrawn because they, frankly, kill people. Um, <laughs> Fenformine officially kills people. Uh, that was the fen-fen combination caused pulmonary hypertension and death. Sibutramine may increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes. That was withdrawn by the FDA somewhat recently. Remotivant actually never made it to the U.S. market. It made it to the European market. But due to concern about anxiety and potential risk of suicide, that actually is now off the European market as well. That being said, even aside from toxicity, we got to talk about efficacy. Most of these medications cause approximately three to seven kilograms of placebo-adjusted weight loss, not tons of weight, especially when we're not long, no longer talking about an obese population that has a BMI of 30, but a growingly obese population that has a BMI of 35 and 40 and above. Not just that, they're approved for three months of use. That's it. And then after that, it's off-label. And they only work while you take them, so they don't have long-lasting effects. So, it's an unpopular opinion, certainly, that we can't long-term intervene upon obesity but at, at this moment. Now, if we can't intervene upon obesity, maybe we can intervene upon its major toxicities. And so obesity predisposes to other things, right? Obesity by itself is not, aside from a cosmetic issue, it, it's a clinical risk. The clinical risk, for my perspective, and there are others, is type 2 diabetes and fatty liver. And so as we've slowly evolved to this state, We've uh, progressively affected all of these organs, which are now um, key players in, the, um, in, in where we may be able to intervene upon obesity. The, the pancreas, obviously, is the secretory organ that promote, uh, pr um, supplies insulin. But that's kind of the end stage, right? Uh, so once you have pancreatic failure, it may be too late. So we've got to intervene at an earlier stage where maybe these uh, organs are more relevant players. 
So, as Nima alluded to, I was a fat guy before. I mean, I worked on a different side, so I was a little heavier back in the day. But um, uh, probably a more relevant organ for insulin resistance is the liver. And I've grown to, and even as I slowly move my way back towards adipose at some point, um, I've, I've grown to appreciate the liver and all it can do. So hepatic insulin resistance actually occurs fairly late in the progression of type 2 diabetes, uh, or in insulin resistance in general. Muscle probably precedes it. Um, but it does produce the fasting hyperglycemia that's the hallmark in the type 2 diabetic patient. It's also the therapeutic target for biguanide therapy, metformin, which is first line and safest for all type 2 diabetic patients. But the interplay between liver and muscle and beta cells and brain and fat is pretty remarkable and has, it has been pretty well studied in the past 10 to 20 years. Here are the pathways I'm going to discuss in this talk today. I'm going to talk about every single one. <laughs> I'm not at all. I'm going to focus really on uh, this pathway, which is the insulin to insulin receptor going down to FOXO proteins for obvious reasons given my mentor. Um, so in the hepatocyte, insulin does many, many things. But one of the things it does do is inhibit the action of FOXO1. Um, why is this important? FOX1, normally speaking, when it's active, activates the, um, the expression of glucose 6-phosphatase and Pepsi-K. Now, going back to biochemistry, and some of you are closer to biochemistry than I am, these are the rate-limiting enzymes for gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis, which are then what causes hepatocyte glucose production and that fasting hyperglycemia, if you take it all the way through. So, in these cells, these are cells that are expressing a fusion protein of FOXO1 and GFP. In the absence of insulin, this is all in the nucleus. You can't even see the cytoplasm because all the FOXO is in the nucleus. But within minutes of adding insulin to these cells, that FOXO1 in the nucleus pretty rapidly translocates to the cytoplasm. And it's very exciting to see this in cell culture, but this is what happens in vivo, too. Insulin rapidly affects FOXO1 uh, localization. And this is important because then insulin shuts down all these processes as it should. It doesn't do so well in the type 2 diabetic patient, though. Now, we've learned a lot about FOXO over the past 10 to 20 years, mostly through the efforts of Mima's lab, but also others. Um, whenever you make a mouse model that has less FOXO1, especially in the liver, these mice tend to be healthier, especially from the glucose perspective. So you can do a lot of genetic manipulations in mouse that you can't really do ethically in people, of course. So if you knock out FOXO1 in hepatocytes only, you can reduce the hepatic glucose production, which results in a mild fasting hypoglycemia. Nothing to write home about because there's a lot of compensatory mechanisms, but it does improve things. And if you uh, knock it out in an OBOB model, essentially, uh, a leptin-deficient, obese, insulin-resistant model, you actually improve these mice. You can do that with diet-induced obese models as well. So all the data, biochemical, genetic, all, suggests that FOXO1 would be a great drug target. Um, but it's been very difficult, as many of us can attest to, um, to develop agents that inhibit FOXO1 due to a couple things. One of it's, it's nuclear. <coughs> Um, it's not on the cell surface. You can't hit it with a monoclonal antibody, which is all the rage in many of our uh, disciplines now, um, to inhibit its action. It has a fairly broad transcriptional signature, and it doesn't have a very clear ligand binding domain. It's regulated by phosphorylation, but those are trickier steps to then intervene upon uh, when you develop a therapeutic agent. So the concept, I guess, of our work 
was that we need a more therapeutically friendly way to affect FOXO processes, right, without actually affecting directly FOXO, because we can't, as yet. So this is uh, how I started working on Notch in metabolism, and this is by far and away, when I give a talk, the question I get over and over and over again. Why am I looking at Notch in metabolism? And so this is how we learn to stop worrying and consider ignoring dogma, uh, movie reference. Um, so this is the C2-C12 myoblast to myocyte differentiation paradigm. These are muscle cells. You can see them highlighting green. These become uh, fibers in vitro in a cell culture dish. But they start out as little cells. And then if you deprive them of serum, they form these tube-like structures. Unless you activate FOXO in these cells. So if you put in FOXO into these cells, you stop that differentiation altogether. Now this is work done by an extraordinarily uh, talented postdoc who worked with MIMO for many, many years and now is a professor in Japan. Um, for whatever reason, and there was good reason, I, I thought it was a remarkable scientific breakthrough, but if you block notch signaling at the same time you're activating FOXO, you rescue that phenotype. So FOXO blocks differentiation, but if you block notch signaling, you rescue. So, Again, I'm going to go through a little bit of preamble simply because it's such an unusual thing to look at notch in the context of metabolism. What is notch? Um, and then I'll come back to that data. Notch is a, a family of transmembrane receptors that traditionally have been thought to regulate cell fate, decision-making process during development. And the way it does it is through cell-cell communication. A cell tells its neighboring cell, come join me, differentiate into the same thing I am. Or the two of them get together and say, well, I have, we have enough now. We've got two of us. We don't need a third. So you become something else. And that's what Notch does in development. Um, it's complex. There are four Notch receptors and there are five Notch ligands, which means there is a lot of variation on a theme, depending on the organ. If Notch is aberrantly activated, and this is now in the adult, animal, or person, um, you get cancer. So if you have notch one dysregulation, you get certain leukemia subtypes, T-A-L-L. And it tends to be upregulated in many other tumors, including stomach and others. Now, what makes it difficult to study is that oftentimes when you disrupt notch signaling in the whole animal, the mice don't make it. If you disrupt notch signaling in a whole person, people don't make it. Um, so you have um, loss of function mutation sometimes, but you never have whole body null mutation. Um, and the reason why notch one mice, not, uh, knockout mice, die is they have arteriovenous malformations, which is actually the same phenotype that FOXA1 null mice have, which is why we end up doing tissue-specific knockouts oftentimes. Okay, so notch is relevant for differentiation and development and in cancer, but it's never really been studied in metabolism, right? But we thought based on uh, Dr. Kitamura and Dr. Achille's work, and this was right before I joined the lab, that if FOXO and NOTCH were cooperating to regulate differentiation, maybe FOXO and NOTCH can cooperate to regulate metabolism as well. So I conceived of uh, a model where instead of this, where FOXO and NOTCH are both binding to RBPJ kappa, which is the transcriptional effector downstream of all of the NOTCH receptors, maybe there's a little vice versa going on here, where NOTCH and RBPJ kappa are interfering with FOXO function. Therefore, we could maybe intervene upon FOXO processes by intervening upon NOTCH. Now, the reason that became relevant is because there's a lot of notch tools out there. They've been studied because of the cancer connection. If you inhibit notch in cancer, you tend to get less cancer. Maybe we could do the same thing with diabetes. But the necessary preamble to that was 
is this even relevant? Is notch expressed in the liver? Is notch expressed in adult tissue? Is notch metabolically regulated? So that was hypothesis 1A back in 2007, the summer. Trying to figure out, is this even a worthwhile question to ask? Like, yes, there might be therapeutic agents that are available, but is there anything to act on? So at this point, again, nothing is known about the relative expression of notch in adult liver. It's not known whether it's even there. Um, as I said, most notch studies focus on differentiation or cancer, or its potential metabolic regulation. So we hypothesized, actually, that if hepatic notch has a regulatory role in glucose metabolism in the adult animal, then notch signaling should be metabolically regulated also. Maybe similar to FOXO, maybe not, but it should at least have some change in expression, some change in activation in states that are uh, physiologic, fasting, refeeding, or pathologic, like obesity or insulin resistance. So before I do that, let me introduce some of the tools that we do have, because there are some nice tools in the notch field, and this is more diagnostic tools, and I'll get to the therapeutic tools later. So this is a very, very simple schematic of the notch signaling pathway. You have a neighboring cell that expresses a ligand, either of the delta or jagged family, that binds to a receptor on a neighboring cell membrane, notch 1 through notch 4. This binding releases this heterodimer, makes it susceptible to cleavage by the gamma secretase, and we're going to come back to the gamma secretase a little bit later too, giving rise to this intracellular form of notch 1. And this is the active form of notch 1. That intracellular form rapidly translocates to the nucleus. That differentiates itself a little bit from FOX. So this is the step here. It's not an AKT phosphorylation, it's this gamma secretase liberation. That intracellular form of notch translocates to the nucleus and binds RBPJ kappa and turns on expression of these Hess and Hay family of genes. There's a whole family of genes that seem to be downstream of notch signaling across many tissues. So you can actually measure a couple things. One is the intracellular form of notch one. And you can measure the downstream gene expression, the Hess and Hay family of genes. So what we did initially was just did a very broad survey. What do hepatocytes express? And they expressed, thankfully actually, for the studies I was going to do, mostly notch one and notch two to a lesser degree and really not much of notch three and notch four. The reason this is good is because the tools are best for notch one. We had mice for notch one. It was all very fortuitous at this point. So, now we're looking for changes in the intracellular form of notch, and we're looking for changes in the gene expression downstream of notch signal. So really easy, well, this experiment was actually a big pain, because we uh, took 85 mice and fasted them for varying lengths of time and refed them for varying lengths of time. And, but mostly it was a very descript descriptive thing to look to see, among other things, whether notch signaling increased with increasing lengths of fast. And that's exactly what we saw. So looking at uh, using a, it's not a pretty Western, but it is a Western for uh, uh, the notch one intracellular domain. You can see with, as the fast length goes from four hours to 12 hours to 18 hours, and mice don't really like an 18 hour fast, by the way, but the intracellular form of notch one accumulates. In parallel with this, you see a progressive increase in gene expression of those downstream notch targets of the Hess and Hay family. So this is pretty remarkable, actually, because A, this shows that notch is expressed in liver, and B, that its expression is regulatable. The next step, well, okay, it's regulated in physiology. Maybe it's regulated in pathology as well. So we took OBOB mice. We took DVDV mice, too, which have, are missing the leptin receptor, and they get equally fat and equally insulin resistant. And um, the notch downstream targets are, again, up. So they're up in both fasting, and they're up in insulin resistance. That sounds a lot like FOXO. So um, 
this basic hypothesis of 1A was that it, it looks like notch activation mirrors that of FOXO. So whenever FOXO is up, notch also happens to be up. Is it just coincidence or is there a reason for that? And that's the next step, right? Um, but nicely, it links a pathway that senses nutrient availability, which is the uh, insulin-insulin receptor FOXO1 pathway, and one that determines differentiation. And you can see how that might be physiologically relevant during differentiation. Is this physiologically relevant in metabolism as well? So again, I go to the next step of that hypothesis. That, and this had already been shown by uh, Dr. Shkidamura and Achille. FOXO and NOTCH binding to RBPJ-kappa driving HES expression and differentiation, right? I'm just turning it around a little bit. If all these factors interact, and this was shown nicely in a biochemical manner that they all physically interact, perhaps RBPJ-kappa and NOTCH can influence FOXO on glucose 6-phosphatase and PEPCK and its other gene targets. Now again, the reason this is nice is that we can inhibit NOTCH signaling with therapeutically uh, available agents. <coughs> we have genetic tools as well. And we can maybe uncover novel uses of existing agents for metabolism. So over three to four years, we manipulated this genetic, uh, these uh, pathways in mice. And it, again, I, I've modified this slide a little bit because it's a little painful to demonstrate three years of work in one slide. But um, so one can conceive the uh, targets you can modify as notch one itself, right? You can modify the gamma secretase, which is involved in uh, forming the intracellular domain. And you can, mod you could, uh, knock out RBPJ kappa, the common transcriptional factor. And we've done all these things. And I want to focus on only one, that uh, liver-specific knockout of RBPJ kappa. So we made these mice. We crossed an albumin promoter Cree mouse with the RBPJ kappa flux mouse. It's the Cree Vox technology. It's been commonly used. So these mice have intact notch throughout development and in every other tissue except for the hepatocyte. So all the rest of the cells in the liver look just like they would look. Now, the first step is whether these mice are weird. And they're not. They grow up normally, they look normal, they're born at normal ratios. You put them on a chow diet, they gain weight just as well as a controlled mouse. You put them on high-fat diet, and they get just as fat as a controlled mouse. So this is at about four months of age. These mice are about 45 grams. Pretty fat mouse. And if you put these mice through the MRI to get to body composition, they have about 40% body fat. But, and this is all pretty standard mouse phenotyping, right? But the important thing to recognize here is that there's actually no difference in body fat or body weight between either control mice or the mouse locking uh, notch signaling in the liver. So at that point, you exclude to some degree an obesity phenotype. Then you move on to the glucose phenotype. And this was uh, really quite surprising to the extent that I repeated this a few times and saw the exact same thing, which is nice. Um, so in mice that have no notch signaling in only hepatocytes, when you do a glucose tolerance test, as we do in people, just a little differently, we inject them in the belly, um, these mice have lower glucose excursion, so they're healthier. They have uh, less glucose intolerance when put on a high-fat diet. Not just that, if you just take blood from them as they're getting fat along the way, and the x-axis here is age in weeks, so as these mice get just as fat, they have lower insulin levels. So they're actually more glucose tolerant and less insulin resistant. So this was great, and again, this was a fair amount of time, but this was a chronic model as well. We then asked the question, could we do this acutely? Again, we have these therapeutic agents already in preclinical trials. Can we then interfere on a mouse that's already fat? What do those guys look like if you fasted for 24 hours? 
You know, I don't think I've ever fasted for 24 hours with a, an overnight fast, a 16-hour fast. Yeah, the glucoses, are the, the resting glucoses are the same. They're a little bit lower. They're about 10 milligrams per deciliter lower in the high-fat diet. Mm -hmm. um, so acute inhibition of notch-signaling using these tools again. So one of the tools that we're quite excited about is something called a notch decoy. So the notch decoy, again, if you go to my very simple schematic, encodes just the extracellular domain of the notch one receptor. One could predict that. If you have just the extracellular domain, then you tie up all the ligand. The ligand can't signal to endogenous notch one receptor, and you don't have any of the downstream events. So this was actually developed by uh, one of my K co-mentors, Jan Kitajewski, who is next door in the cancer center. Um, and it's now licensed by Esai Pharmaceuticals for use in various cancers. They're still doing the preclinical work for that. But it, it's very specific, actually. Quenches only ligand-dependent notch activation. So we put these decoys into mice, into diet-induced obese mice. And we're looking to see whether this recapitulates our genetic model, uh, genetic um, uh, chronic notch insufficiency in hepatocytes. So when you do that, the decoy-treated mice have lower fasting glucose, lower fasting insulin. The combination of this means more insulin-sensitive, right? And when you do a glucose tolerance test, you actually see a protection from glucose intolerance with high-fat diet feeding. Again, no difference in body weight, no difference in adiposity. We have other tools. Have, quick yeah. So this is done by adenoviral infection. So we infected these mice with adenovirus to try to get it uh, liver-specific to some degree. And this glucose tolerance test was done at day three. So you see the effect pretty quickly. I don't know what happens on day one, presumably somewhat, but I haven't tested it. Um, the gamma secretase, it's a good question actually, and at least right next to things this. The gamma secretase inhibitor is another class of agents. They've been developed for a number of years. There's a lot of excitement about this, and the reason being is that they block a few things. The thing that they were designed to do is block Alzheimer's precursor protein to beta amyloid production. The beta amyloid hypothesis for Alzheimer's disease suggests that if you block beta amyloid deposition, you won't get Alzheimer's. So these gamma secretase inhibitors block that as well. Unfortunately, they also block notch, and as such, they have side effects. So we took advantage of this. We're not gonna put gamma secretase inhibitors into people, but we put it into mice, and the mice <coughs> So the gamma secretase inhibitor blocks that gamma secretase in, uh, cleavage of notch one to notch one state. As such, they can block notch signaling acutely again. When we do this, and we did this in lean mice, we did this in diet-induced obese mice, and we did this in genetically uh, obese mice, the OBOB model, despite no change in body weight, again, the lean mice don't change weight and the obese mice don't change weight, and this is over a five-day treatment course, glucose has come down pretty remarkably. You can take a lean mouse and make it hypoglycemic. You can take an obese mouse and bring it down from diabetes range to normal. You can take an OBOB mouse and bring it down pretty markedly. Um, and improve glucose tolerance quite a bit. And this effect you actually see within a single dose. Actually, it might be even stronger in a single dose than after five days of dosing. So again, this is more of a proof of principle that an acute inhibition of notch signaling can do similar things as a chronic model. What happens at the converse? Instead of inhibiting notch, what if you overexpress notch? And what if you overexpress notch in just the liver? So again, we took an adenovirus that expresses the intracellular domain of notch one only, and that's a constitutively active notch one. As we would expect then, based on our inhibition models, 
When you overexpress NOTCH in the liver, you get higher fasting and refed glucose, higher fasting and refed insulin. We promote insulin resistance. How does this happen? And so, again, if you take it back all the way to when we started in 07, we were speculating that this is affecting FOXA, right? And that was part of the, uh, the objective of this project. What we actually found is that they're both FOXA-dependent as well as independent acts of NOTCH here. So RDPJ-kappa actually has a binding site in the promoter of certain genes, including glucose-6-phosphatase, which is so important for glycogenolysis and glucose production. That binding site is there in mouse, in rat, in humans, in dogs, in chickens, at the same exact site all the way through evolution. RBPJ-kappa actually binds to the glucose-6-phosphatase uh, promoter independent of FOXA. So even in mice that don't have FOXA in the liver, RBPJ-kappa is still at that binding site. That being said, without FOXA, RBPJ-kappa doesn't have an action. So what we show here in these luciferase assays, and this is a little complex, but I want to introduce the concept of luciferase assay since I'm going to come back to that. We have these uh, constructs which have either intact FOXA binding sites, which are these black bars, and an intact RBPJ-kappa binding site, which is this R symbol. When you have both FOXO and RBPJ-kappa binding sites, and you treat cells with NOTCH, you get a big upregulation of glucose phosphate. Very statistically and you see this in vivo as well. When you mutate the FOXA binding sites, you completely lose the NOTCH effect. When you don't have the RBPJ kappa uh, binding site, and this is a smaller luciferase construct, you don't have the notch effect. All this really goes to show is that notch, even though RBPJ kappa is on the promoter, it needs both FOXO as well as intact notch signaling to be active. So this leads me to my preliminary conclusions. And again, I'm, I'm very simple. I have very simple schematics. Um, in the fastest state, there's decreased insulin, right? Uh, this is predictable, otherwise you get hypoglycemia. With decreased insulin, you get decreased phosphorylation of AKT. When you have decreased phosphorylation of AKT, FOXA tends to be in the nucleus. RBPJ-kappa is already there, sitting on DNA on the glucose-6-phosphatase promoter. Through some <coughs> other signal, and this other signal we're still working on, NOTCH is activated. NOTCH also binds RBPJ-kappa, drives glucose out. And I think this is all pretty val validated now in both in vitro and in vivo models. Well, I just ask, is there yes. any relationship between glucagon and notch because it's mm. a regulated investing? Mm. You know, it's a great question. Mm. I don't have a direct answer to that question. I have a very indirect answer to that question. I have another model where I have the FOXA1 notch1 double heterozygote model. In those mice, there's no difference in glucagon levels, but that's actually a very different question. I haven't actually tested to see so what glucagon levels. We have levers from a, a, a model, a fasting model where we. Treated the mice with anti-glucagon antibody, and mm -hmm. the anti antibody worked great. Mm -hmm. So we can give you some of that liver and you might be able to. That would be great. Then I could test for notch 1 IC as well as gene expression. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So I think we have good data on glucose. And that was a, a good chunk of time. But more recently, I've been getting more and more interested in fatty liver. For kind of obvious reasons that I'm going to get into in a few slides. One of those reasons is that besides its actions on glucose, so again, I come back to this very simple schematic where FOXA1 is upregulating glucose production, you get hyperglycemia. It also seems like FOXA1 is blocking lipogenesis, and in doing so, blocking fatty liver. Now, this is a very, very interesting field. It's getting crowded, frankly, but it's getting crowded in a good way because we have to figure this out. There's no 
there's no medicines for fatty liver. The only thing you can do is transplant uh, a new liver. So we know all this about FOXA. We want to see what the influence of Notch is on this pathway. So again, and most of this work is done uh, through genetic models. Some of this work was done by uh, Rebecca Hoysa, who's in the audience. FOXA-deficient livers are steatotic, likely due to increased lipogenesis. The exact mechanism is uh, still under debate. Since deficiency of FOXO causes hepatic steatosis, if the only thing Notch is doing in the liver is to modulate FOXO, then deficiency of Notch, or RBPJ kappa by surrogate, should also cause fatty liver. And that was our hypothesis, actually. And that was completely wrong. Um, which is good. I, I like being wrong. It gives you more interesting data in the end, um, if you can figure out why you're wrong. So this is very unexpected. So this is a pre-minus mouse. This is a control mouse. And all these open circles are where lipid was. And this is liver. So all these open circles is uh, lipid that's been washed away during the fixation process. This is a pretty fat mouse with pretty fatty liver. Comparable mouse, RBPJ deficient, same body weight, same adiposity, very little lipid. And we see this, and again, this is unexpected, so I've tested this on three independent cohorts, about 40% reduction in hepatic triglycerides. So even uh, as we see a nice visual representation of less lipid in the liver, you can actually quantitate that and there's less triglyceride there. Again, fatty liver is a thing. And as more and more people get obese, the more and more fatty liver we're going to see. And again, there's not much you can do about it. It's the fastest growing reason for liver transplantation. I had heard, actually, that it was the number one reason for liver transplantation. But I can't find that in the data anywhere. But it's now surpassed alcohol or hepatitis viruses as causes for liver transplant. Um, but there's a lot of different routes to get to fatty liver. Uh, it's a very complex system. Obviously, you need fat. So with fat, you get uh, free fatty acids which are taken up by the liver. And the free fatty acids taken up by the liver can go through various uh, uh, pathways then. They could be then resecreted by the liver after esterification, and they're resecreted as the LDL. They could be oxidized through a process called beta oxidation, which generates carbon dioxide, and then disposed of in that way. They could be shunted to gluconeogenic pathways, but actually what happens oftentimes in marked obesity is that they just become stored in liver. Um, so we saw this phenotype, right? We saw a deficiency in hepatic lipids in when we knock out notch the hand. Again, there's a lot of mechanistic ways to get there. Is it that these mice are not absorbing fat from their diet? That would be unusual because it's a liver-specific knockout, but it could be. Um, or hepatocyte-specific knockout. Um, maybe they're not secreting those triglycerides that they then form in the liver. So we tested all these things. And you can do a lot of, again, nice things to a mouse that you really can't do in people. So we gavaged olive oil into these mice to see if they absorbed the triglyceride, and they seem to absorb it just fine. There's no difference in plasma triglycerides after. We took hepatocytes from these mice, gave them labeled CO2, uh, labeled oleic acid, a fatty acid, and see how much uh, labeled CO2 that they produce. It was a tricky experiment, but it was kind of fun, and there was absolutely no difference between the pre-minus and RGPJ deficient hepatocyte. We could inject these mice with an inhibitor of uh, triglyceride absorption, phylloxide to assess the triglyceride secretion. Again, there was no difference in triglyceride secretion. So basically, this is all a preamble to where I'm coming to now. If there's no difference in anything else, there has to be something inherently different in the livers of these mice. So you can measure that directly as well. And what we're measuring here is de novo fatty acid synthesis. So taking acetyl-CoA and converting it to long-chain fatty acids, which are then stored in the liver. You take tritiated water, you inject it into high-fat diet fed mice. 
you then extract the lipids from these mice and do thin layer chromatography. And you can actually see, and this is what we see in, uh, by quantitation or when we look at the livers itself, this big fatty acid spot in these high-fat diet-fed mice is much, much smaller in the RUPJ deficient mouse. Pre-minus RUP, pre-minus RUP. Okay. So this is, again, another visual representation of these mice have less fat. So then you cut out these uh, fatty acid spots and then count because you, uh, you added labeled uh, uh, water to the system, right? And when we do that, we can actually calculate the fatty acid synthesis rate. And despite all this work, this didn't get to statistical significance. There's a lot of variation on this. It's, it's, this is a very annoying experiment with uh, uh, very annoying outcomes oftentimes. <laughs> but um, the direction and the magnitude matches up with what we were expecting. We see less fatty liver. We see about 40 to 50% reduced. And we see about 50% reduction in fatty acid synthesis as well. OK, so again, Fatty acid synthesis is this process where you take acetyl-CoA and through the action of sequential enzymes, acetyl-CoA carboxylase, fatty acid synthase, you generate stearic acid, which then goes down. So you get these very long chain fatty acids, which are stored in the liver from a very small two-carbon uh, precursor. So oftentimes what's done is not that annoying experiment that I just described, but actually just looking at the expression of ACC and FAS, which are the key rate-limiting steps of fatty acid synthesis. So we did that also, right? Um, and so in the liver, RDPJ deficient mice have much lower levels of ACC1, much lower levels of fatty acid synthase. Is this cell autonomous? Is this something in the liver or is it uh, caused by changes in fat? Or is it uh, a hepatocyte process in itself? So we did a, a fatty acid synthase luciferase construct and in that RDPJ deficient hepatocyte, they have lower expression of this as well. So this is a cell autonomous decrease in fatty acid synthesis or so it's that's the chronic model. This is our acute model again. So we go back to our notch decoy treated mice. Pulled those livers out of the freezer. This is a new hypothesis. Always keep your livers. You never know. Um, those notch decoy treated mice also have pretty remarkably lower levels of ACC1 and fatty acid synthase and lower levels of hepatic triglycerides. So both chronic as well as acute notch inhibition now beyond reducing glucose also reduce fatty liver rate. What about the converse experiment, right? I said notch one overexpression induces glucose intolerance. Will it also cause fatty liver? And it does. So this is a different technique where we take these liver sections, uh, fix them, um, and stain them with oral red with stains liver. And all these little red dots, I don't know if you can see it because they're quite small, um, is staph uh, deposition. And when we quantitate that, the notch Active, uh, overactive notch in the liver induces steatosis, and this is by about 40% also. So, reduction of notch signaling decreases fatty liver by about 40%. Overexpression notch signaling conveniently increases uh, not, um, fatty liver by about 40% as well. So, why? And this is where we got stuck for a little bit because, yes, we saw the fatty acid synthase down, we saw the ACC1 down. That might be sufficient, but we still want to know why that might be. We got a clue from the literature, actually. People have been studying this protein called mTOR for a while now, since it was discovered about 15 years ago. But the connection between mTOR and fatty liver is fairly new. So when we did Western blocks in our RBPJ deficient mice, we saw a pretty remarkable reduction in phosphorylated S6 kinase and phosphorylated 4BP1. Now these, the names again are somewhat irrelevant. They are markers of increased mTOR activation. So when you have more of this, mTOR is more active. When you have less of it, mTOR is less active. Conversely, when we have notch one treated mice, 
beget higher levels of both of these. So it seemed, generally speaking, that the notch state of the liver mirrored the mTOR state of the liver. The lower notch signal you have, the lower mTOR signal you have. Now again, why is this important? And this is because uh, in a series of papers from the Brown Goldstein group, the Sabatini group up in Harvard, um, and others, um, increased mTOR1 activation looks to lead to increased lipogenesis and increased fatty liver. So the Brown and Goldstein group has shown very nicely in primary hepatocytes that insulin signaling and growth factors activate mTOR1, which in turn activates SRBP1C, and this is one of those key transcription factors that turn on lipogenesis. This pathway can be inhibited by rapamycin, which is a blocker of mTOR1. The Sabatini group up in Boston has shown that liver-specific knockout of mTORC1-defining subunit Raptor, and that's this little subunit here, <coughs> a necessary and critical subunit of mTORC1 complex, can also prevent fatty liver when mice are challenged with a high-fat diet. So this is, again, a very simple schematic. Insulin and nutrient, and nutrient is often used, uh, branching amino acids, excess leucine, um, activate mTORC1. This is a process that could be inhibited by rapamycin, but if mTORC1 is active, you get higher levels of SRBP1C, higher rates of lipogenesis, and even though this hasn't been conclusively shown, fatty liver. So it's a potential pathway. What about notch in mTOR? And this was surprising to me because there's literally thousands of papers. If you do a PubMed search for notch, there's thousands of papers. If you do a PubMed search for mTOR, another thousand papers. You would think that the Venn diagram that would form, there'd be a lot of um, notch plus mTOR, but there are only two. Um, so, but the previous studies have both been from the cancer literature and have, are conceptually very similar to what we just showed in vivo. Whenever notch is active, and they did this in leukemic cells, notch overexpression leads to activation of mTOR signaling. Or, if you block notch signaling with gamma secondary inhibitor, you get to decreased mTOR activation. And this was done in a breast cancer model. So our in vivo data, which we then repeated in primary hepatocytes just to confirm that cell autonomy has to do with the hepatocyte, is very broadly consistent with these findings. Again, the RPJ deficient or notch decoy treated mice show impaired mTOR1 activation, and notch one ic over existing mice show higher levels of mTOR. So then the question, obviously, this was all correlated, right? Can you then block the notch effect on fatty liver by blocking mTOR signal, right? Um, and luckily, there are tools for that too, the rapamycin. So before I do that, let me do another luciferase assay, because I do like them. But you can, you can get some data from it. You can't extrapolate too much, but you can get some data. So using that fatty acid synthase luciferase reporter, when you activate notch, you get about a four-fold upregulation. When you activate notch and add insulin, that is magnified. You get up to 10 to 15-fold, depending on the assay. Now, this can be completely blocked when you knock down Raptor. That was that mTORC1 component. So if you block mTORC1, you rescue that entirely, both in the absence of insulin or in the presence of insulin. This is nice. This is in vitro. But what happens in vivo? Again, this is data I showed you already. When you overexpress notch in the liver, you get about a 40% increase in fatty triglycerides. That's completely gone when you treat with rapamycin. This is pretty striking, actually. I did not expect this to work. Now, um, the gene expression, and this I didn't show you, when you overexpress notch in vivo, you get an increase in SRBP1C, you get an increase in fatty acid synthase. This matches up with increased fatty liver. But when you treat with rapamycin, those are completely blocked as well. This is despite the fact that canonical notch targets of the Hess and Hay family 
are unaffected. So it looks like rapamycin is blocking the notch effect on lipogenic genes, but not on notch genes. What happens to glucose, right? That was getting back to that first section of the talk. Notch induces glucose intolerance. Rapamycin blocks the notch effect on fatty liver. Maybe rapamycin also blocks the notch effect on glucose. Not at all. So this is in the presence of rapamycin, GFP in blue, notch in red. When you overexpress notch, you get higher levels of glucose in the blood after a glucose tolerance test. This is unaffected by rapamycin. And that's what we show here with areas under the curve. <coughs> so mTORC1 inhibition protects from notch-induced fatty liver, but not glucose intolerance. So this is our new working model. And again, very simple. Insulin represses FOXA. Insulin activates mTORC. The combination of these things shunts more uh, car uh, more carbons from glucose production to lipid synthesis. Notch, for whatever reason, seems to be activating both pathways. So if you overexpress notch, you get more FOXO activation. With more FOXO activation, you get more glucose production. In parallel, with more notch activation, you get higher levels of mTORC1 activation, and so downstream, higher lipid synthesis. This makes it somewhat not, this makes it a somewhat unique target, actually. Uh, the ability of notch to augment both glucose production as well as lipid synthesis, I, in my mind, confirm its, uh, uh, its bona fide as uh, a therapeutic target. Because if you inhibit hepatic notch signaling, you should be able to inhibit both of these. And so that's the direction where we're going now. Now, we, this is all mouse right? I see patients upstairs. I, I want to treat people eventually. Um, I'll skip that. Is notch signaling altered in diabetic patients? So we have a collaboration with the former mentee of uh, MIMOS, Luca Valenti in Milan, where he has, uh, due to the vagaries of IRBs in different countries, ability to get tissue that I might not be able to get. So um, <laughs> he got tissue from uh, patients undergoing liver biopsy during gastric bypass surgery. So all these patients are obese. But in these uh, obese patients, there's a range in insulin sensitivity, some insulin sensitive somehow to insulin resistant to, frankly, type 2 diabetes. And in these patients then, we could compare what is notch signaling like in people. So here we take insulin sensitive patients or diabetic patients, and I guess it's visually fairly obvious, right? So these are liver sections, right? And we're looking for immunofluorescence of a notch target, in this case, HAY1. And it's pretty clear that the diabetic patients have higher levels of uh, notch signaling in the hepatocyte, even in patients who have similar levels of um, adiposity. Now we then took those same liver samples, processed them, got their RNA out, made cDNA, and did quantitative PCR. And we actually found that notch and notch target expression co-vary with glucose 6-phosphatase and Pepsi-K. Now this covariance is a correlative study, of course, but it suggests perhaps a, a common uh, mechanism by which notch signaling as well as glucose 6-phosphatase is mediated. It doesn't prove, of course, that notch signaling cause of that change, but it is a nice correlation. So that was a nice pilot study, and that was enough data to justify my K application among others. But um, we then extended that. He got another group of patients. These are patients undergoing liver biopsy for abnormal liver function tests. Um, and he did a full metabolic characterization. These were either patients who somehow had abnormal LFTs, despite being insulin sensitive and no fatty liver, all the way up to insulin resistance with steatosis and NASH, non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis, so inflammation and even uh, uh, necrosis. 
So we can see here, using a readout of gene expression now, HES1, that as, even in the insulin-sensitive state, you go from normal to steatosis to NASH, you get an increase. And this is very significant by ANOVA. In the insulin-resistant state, you see this as well. And the highest levels are in patients who are both insulin-resistant as well as have NASH. Again, this is correlative, but it does suggest that there might be an independent correlation between NASH signaling in the liver and insulin sensitivity in the liver, as well as hepatic steatosis. So using multivariate analysis, my collaborator did this, where HES1 expression correlates with both glucose 6-phosphatase expression, that was highly significant, independent of BMI, independent of HOMA-IR, and independent of hepatic steatosis. This suggests that there's an insulin independent, and this might be over-extrapolating, but to me it suggests that it's an insulin independent but not dependent effect on glucose 6-phosphatase expression. This last part is a question mark because it is over step one. Um, HOMA IR was also correlated with uh, HES1 expression. Even after adjustment for HBMI and percent hepatic steatosis, conversely, HES1 correlated with hepatic steatosis after adjustment for HBMI and HOMA IR. So it seems like there are independent effects of NOSH, at least that correlate with HOMA IR and hepatic steatosis. More future directions. And this has uh, been suggested to me over and over very politely by many in this audience. Uh, and why I highlighted it here. What is this signal sending itself? So I focused on the hepatocyte, right? And I'm considering that the signal receiving cell. So when we do all of our manipulations in hepatocytes, we see pretty profound effects. What's signaling to the hepatocyte? Because we have to put it in the context of this is actually not signaling. Not signaling is based on ligand on a neighboring cell. Is this neighboring cell a hepatocyte? Is this neighboring cell a Cooper cell? or another cell in the liver. We actually have some ideas of how we might be able to uh, manipulate the signal sending cell once we figure out how it is, what it is. I did okay on time, I think. Um, conclusions. NOTS expression is dysregulated in mouse models. This is one of my earlier slides. So it's, it's higher in the obese mouse, the insulin-resistant mouse. It seems to be dysregulated in human disease as well, in both NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as well as insulin resistance. We've shown in vitro and in mice, that notch inhibition prevents obesity-induced insulin resistance in fatty liver through very um, different and, I think, novel mechanisms. Um, and what we have now are these specific inhibitors, monoclonal antibodies, notch decoy, decoy antagonists, that are in preclinical or clinical development. Why not test to see whether they might also impact metabolism? There was so much research that went into developing these inhibitors. You have to know whether it would actually have an effect in uh, glucose or lipid homeostasis. With that, I'd like to stop and acknowledge many, many people. Um, I don't have time for it. My, my fledgling lab. Um, Mima, who's provided excellent mentorship, and uh, the various technicians and uh, members of the lab that have contributed significantly to the project. Jan Kudiewski and members of his lab, and he's again next door in the Kansas Center. Henry Ginsberg, Robin Golan, Ira Goldberg, Carrie Schauber, many people have impacted this work, both on the mouse and human end. Collaborators at Yale, Milan, and my grant support. And thank you for your attention. I'll take questions. Okay, we have five minutes for questions. Ayo. Beautiful, beautiful presentation. Thank you. Um, so, um, what happens to lipoprotein secretion? Um, you're aware of Ding's work relating mm -hmm. mTOR with the sort yeah. sirtillin one pathway. Is that applicable here? 
It's a good question. It's a question I have not fully explored. I've looked at lipoprotein, lipoprotein distribution in gamma secretase inhibitor mice, and there is some effect, but I haven't actually checked in my chronic models, and I think I should, actually. The, um, the triglyceride secretion experiment suggests that there's no global change in TG secretion in that very artificial bloxomer system, but I certainly haven't looked at ApoB secretion. I probably should. Yeah, Tony. So my question, I guess I have two questions. One is sort of the sort of practical one, one is more theoretical. So if you look to see if notch signaling is important in regulating metabolism in other cell types, and what makes the liver special, sort of looking sort of evolutionarily? Yeah. I guess a follow-up question, do you think it's, it has a relevant role in cancer metabolism? Um, yeah, is that, let me go one by one. Um, no. Yes and yes. <laughs> okay. um, in, um, in other cell types, I think it almost certainly will have a role. So uh, again, I allude to a different mouse model, the FOXA1 NOSH1 double head model. In that mouse model, we see changes in both hepatic glucose production, which is markedly reduced, but also changes in muscle glucose disposal. Now the mechanism of that, we haven't explored at all. I think it might be a fiber type switch. But I'm actually thinking that there might be some avenue to study notch signaling in other adult tissues. We're making mouse now using the adiponectin Cree to look at notch signaling in human, I'm um, sorry, mouse adult fat. Um, its role in cancer metabolism, I think it's a great question. I think as the metabolism and cancer fields are converging, these same pathways are relevant for both diabetes as well as the development of cancer. It, has been studied to some degree, but not as well as one would have expected given the known, expe uh, known effects of notch in cancer. So its effects on, for instance, the Warburg effect, unknown. Glutaminolysis and autophagy, unknown. I think these are the next areas of research as the cancer metabolism field progresses. Yes, Peter. Is there any positive effect of notch regulating metabolism? Your data show basically all it does is really bad for your and But even that this is probably physiological, has a physiological role, it couldn't be any good to that. And, you know, or is that just that under these extreme conditions of obesity, that pathway goes wild? I think that's, exa that's exactly what I think. I think that this is a pathway that really shouldn't be active. And that in maybe not so extreme of condition as the like, morbid obesity, but in insulin resistance, something happens that this pathway gets inappropriately reactivated. And with this inappropriate reactivation, I think it reassociates with its former partners in crime during differentiation. So Notch and Foxo, they are known to interact during differentiation. The upregulation in the obese and insulin resistant state then re, uh, you know, there's a recidivism of the, um, of Notch and it starts acting on FOXO again. And similar findings have been found with Notch and mTOR actually because of mTOR's role in differentiation. I think it's probably inappropriate activation of Notch, but I can't exclude that but Notch may also be doing something you positive. Make, do this in admission in a normal mouse, lean mouse, or would that be any bad for them? Yes. So the, well, yes and no. So the gamma secretase inhibitor, I've done it in lean mice. Those mice end up hypoglycemic, which one would maybe predict from the rest of my data, improved glucose tolerance, 
from a lower insulin, but they get a big fatty liver. Now, the reason for that, I think, is notch independent. That being said, I can't exclude that notch might be doing something in the lean mass as well. Just along those lines, um, what are your, what, what set, and you mentioned several cell types, it could be Kupfer cells, it could yep. be hepatocytes, it could be stellate cells. Endothelial cells, sure. Um, you know, we've done some work on Kupfer cells, and we know that in the state of obesity, they undergo ER stress. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, hepatocytes undergo ER stress. Is there any relationship between ER stress and expression of notch ligands? As a, you know, because you're right. For, you know, right. No, no, that hasn't been studied at all. Um, mostly because this is a pretty nascent field. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think anyone's really thought to study that. Mm -hmm. It is something we're interested in, especially the ER stress application of it. Yes, Robin. Well, you mentioned that enhanced the, the not signaling inhibitors are being considered for clinical and preclinical use mm -hmm. in some have they tried it in actual patients? Are people with diabetes excluded as they're in yeah. hint of a metabolic that's a great question. It's a question that Mimo and I were thinking about a few years ago because the gamma secretase inhibitor at least has been tried in people. And that was in the, it was a pretty spectacular failure for the neuro um, research field because the thought was if you take Alzheimer's patients and give them the gamma secretase inhibitor, maybe the Alzheimer's will get better. The reason it failed is probably different. Um, but in that patient population, I honestly have no idea what the effects were. I've been trying to figure out a way to gain access to that data for some time now. It's a good so question. So maybe like one last question because I hear noises. Do you have an idea about how much regulates mTOR signaling? Did you check the Yeah, I do. It's a slide I flew past for time indications. It's actually a field that I'm very interested in now. mTOR is a little too hot for my comfort because it's a lot of competition. And, um, but anyway. So we think it's a completely novel way of regulating mTOR signaling. So when you overexpress notch, you synergistically activate mTOR1 by insulin or amino acids. But I think the way they do it is pretty novel. It seems to have an anti-rapamycin effect. So rapamycin um, dissociates the mTOR1 complex, and you get less uh, mTOR1 signaling. Notch activation seems to stabilize that mTOR1 complex. So what we did is, uh, this is all in vitro, in 293 cells, when we overexpress uh, Raptor, and then co-overexpress Notch. Input's all the same, but the amount of mTOR and G-beta-L, which is the other mTOR1 component that come down, much, much higher. And at the same time, phosphorylation of S6K is higher. Now, and you can do it the other way, overexpress mTOR and then pull down uh, Raptor subunits. And this actually explains something we see in vivo that we couldn't explain for a long time. Whenever you overexpress notch in vivo, you get higher levels of Raptor. When you inhibit notch signaling in hepatocytes in vivo, there are lower levels of Raptor. I think whenever you destabilize notch in the hepatocyte, you're destabilizing mTORC1. This is an area of very active research for us.